Another week has come to a close. Another week is beginning, and that means it's time for another edition of The Weekly Wrap right here on Storytelling with Seth. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, here for another episode of The Weekly Wrap, where we try to look ahead and look back by taking advantage of that time after a week ends and before the next begins to look at those articles, those stories, those storytelling moments that stick with me long after the week has come and gone or even more than one week has passed, but remind me to look ahead each week for the next opportunity to find and share a story. The stories I'm looking at this time around include the Royal Society of Literature's winner of the Ondaji Prize, which is a book based on the oral tradition of storytelling introduced by the author's grandmother. Following that theme of authors, I have a great article from Joyce Carol Oates about how science fiction doesn't have to be dystopian, and how a rising star science fiction author, whose first collection included a short story that was the basis for the Academy Award-nominated film Arrival, and whose recent collection and newest collection follows in the footsteps of great science fiction artists like Philip K. Dick and Ursula K. Le Guin. I've also got a great Q&A reference, which is my Q&A with Mark Magnifico Magsayo, a rising star in the Philippines, a gifted boxer who recently won his fight with his Indonesian opponent, and some interesting tidbits that I enjoyed while conducting this Q&A and after I published it on my website, Seth Singleton Storyteller. My final story for this edition is a great one about how an argument is being made for why atheism could have a purpose or its best claim and statement of support. Essentially, the claim is that atheism presents the possibility that without a god, your time is actually everything, and that eternity can in many ways cheapen that experience. Join me for this edition of Storytelling with Seth, the Weekly Wrap, as we go through my viewpoints, my experiences, and my attempt to share what I think are great examples of storytelling with you. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. For this next story, we're going to talk about a story that got recognition and how it was all based on a form of oral storytelling that didn't derive for any other reason than through uh, the process of necessity. For this story, I'm talking about Ada Edamarium, or Edamarium, who uh, is a Guardian journalist and was awarded the Michael Andaji Prize. Michael Andaji, best known for perhaps the English patient, Ada Edamarium was given the prize for her work, The Wife's Tale, which is a biography of her grandmother, who was born in northern Ethiopia more than 100 years ago and married at the age of eight. The Andaji Prize is given to works of literature by the Royal Society of Literature to recognize 
their ability to evoke the spirit of a place. What stuck with me the most about this story was really the idea that it all came from grandmother, who was not able to write, or even until her 60s, uh, able to read. And everything that she told was done through memory. And actually, Edamarium points out that she was drawn to her grandmother's stories because of the language and the verve with which she told them, which I think is just a great quote, an example of how words like verve need to be used and can still be used extremely well, as, as noted in that example. Uh, and essentially, Edamarium had captured about 50 to 60 hours of tape. These either looping or, as she refers to them, repeating and fragmentary stories, all written in Amharic. And in many ways, she points out that these are a direct translation of what was told to her by her grandmother. And she simply said that she would, Miss Edamarium, would try to let her grandmother speak and let that world speak as much for themselves as possible. And I like this idea because it feels as though Ms. Edamarium decided that she wanted to honor the value of the story as it was originally told and take on more of a translator-facilitator role and create, essentially, a platform for her grandmother's stories to be told. And this really stuck with me because I believe each generation has an opportunity some might say a responsibility, others an obligation, to tell the stories that were told to them, to tell the stories that were told to their parents and grandparents, and to bring those stories alive, if possible, for your generation. And if not, then to carry them for the generations that will follow you, recognizing that if you carry those stories, they're never lost, and as long as you share them, you always give them the opportunity to live on. And in this process, Miss Edamarium did that. She, she focused on what caught her attention the most, and that was the story told by her grandmother and all of the stories told by her grandmother that were told from memory and that came from that very earnest place. And because of that, there was no reason to try and build anything more into the stories. The stories themselves contained everything that was needed. All this Edamarium had to do is to get as much of herself out of the way so that she could make as much room as possible for these stories to shine. Now, once again, the, uh, the work, The Wife's Tale, was written by Ada Edamarium, and it is currently available. And I think, if anything... The thing that catches the most for me is the fact that this was something that came about recently and that following the death of her grandmother in 2013 at the age of 97, this is a final form of stories that were told by someone who was alive. And now that they've passed, while they can be repeated by Miss Edamarium verbally, to whoever she meets, she's also allowed them to move on in another medium by capturing them in this book and allowing them to 
essentially be available for anyone who finds this book on a shelf, opens it, and is able to allow themselves to be pulled into the world of stories that her grandmother told and that Miss Edomarium found so engaging. And I think if I'm going to be telling any stories about anyone, or if I'm going to be telling stories at all, my focus should be on the value of the story themselves, and not about either my telling them or what I can add to the telling of them. And for me, that's just a really great reminder that I have a responsibility when telling stories to make sure that I'm telling stories and not just telling stories from my point of view, from my perspective, but to get as much of myself out of the way as possible so that these stories I want to share and that I want to be heard will have that opportunity. Now here's an article I enjoyed sharing. Featured in the New Yorker called Science Fiction Doesn't Have to be Dystopian. And I'll be honest, the title alone caught my attention, but I was intrigued when I saw that it was written by Joyce Carol Oates, a well-established writer in her own right, and how she was looking at a new collection of stories from science fiction writer Ted Chang. Now, the story points out that Ted Chang actually received a lot of acclaim in 2002 with the publication of his Stories of Your Life and Others, and that Story of Your Life was the basis for the Academy Award-nominated film Arrival. Chang has been listed as a successor to predecessors like Philip K. Dick, James Tripti Jr., Jorge Luis Borges, Ursula K. Le Guin, Margaret Atwood, Haruki Murakami, China Mielvo, Kazuo Ishiguro, and others. And it's about the way that he explores conventional tropes of science fiction in unconventional ways. And the focus here is on his new collection, Exhalation, and how he addresses issues like bioethics, virtual reality, free will, determinism, time travel, and the uses of robotic forms of AI. From what I understand, essentially what he's doing is making an attempt to focus on the different ideas that set science fiction apart, whether it's the merchant and the alchemist gate, which is a tale that feels as much as a Arabian Nights rendition told in ancient Baghdad, and here Chang imagines time travel as a gate through which one can step into another dimension to confront a past or future self without having the ability to actually affect anything in that dimension. Goes on to point out that other stories, like The Great Silence, which is even briefer, gives the point of view as the narrator is a parrot from a forest in Puerto Rico whose species is facing extinction. Hundreds of years ago, my kind was so plentiful that the Rio Abajo forest resounded with our voices, the parrot says. Now we're almost gone. Soon this rainforest may be as silent as the rest of the universe. The larger silence is the mystery that eludes solution. And how it takes this simple idea and makes it local with the story of this bird and the disappearance of its species, spreading it to a global story, but then peeling back just a little bit and stretching out to talk about the idea that the universe is so vast that intelligent life must surely have arisen many times. The universe is also so old that even one technological species would have had time to expand and fill the galaxy. And yet there is no sign of life 
anywhere except on Earth, and that humans call this the Fermi Paradox. The Fermi Paradox, which is also known as the Great Silence, addresses the fact that the universe ought to be full of voices, full of new people, but instead it's just disconcertingly quiet. Even as humans search for extraterrestrial intelligence, this narrator, Mr. Chang, observes that they can't hear the messages being sent by an imperiled species currently living on their own planet. Essentially, I love how, through the writing of Miss Carol Oates, I'm able to understand that this new collection by Ted Chang talks about technology and ingenuity and ethical intricacy, and that stories in exhalation are about the inventive ways that this is addressed and how each is likely to linger in the memory in the way that riddles linger because of the way they tease and challenge without ever giving us the answers. And perhaps that's what I enjoy the most about this article and the content is the idea that it's about the riddles that we're all facing that we know exist and that we think we have the answers to and yet somehow we refuse to solve them and now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor last year my wife and i were lucky enough to travel to the philippines we stayed in makati a district of manila and we had the chance to experience so much of the food, the culture, and the community. And one of the elements that was probably a highlight, if not the highlight of our trip, was meeting a very talented tattoo artist named Francis Arby Magsayo. Francis and her brother gave my wife and I, respectively, tattoos that were based on elements of the culture in Philippines, and also of their style as tattoo artists. Frances has traveled many parts of the world. She is a respected surfer and one of the few female tattoo artists living and working in the Philippines. I also found out through extended conversation between myself, her, and her brother and my wife that her husband is a professional boxer named Mark Magnifico Magsayo. Mark was kind enough to stop by, and it was a pleasure to meet with such a polite, thoughtful, and engaging young man who has committed himself to the professional career of boxing. I have learned in the time since meeting him that Mark began boxing at a very young age, and before he turned professional, had already recorded over 200 fights. He has been on a stellar trajectory despite a recent delay due to contract management complications and one of the many difficulties that can be, you know, just sort of a speed bump on the rising path of any professional athlete, but very commonly within the world of boxing. Mark didn't let that deter him, though, when he recorded a recent knockout against an Indonesian competitor and scored his 16th career knockout. Following the fight, Mark was kind enough to share his thoughts on just a few questions regarding the experience leading up to his fight and also the experience during and after his bout. It's difficult for Mark and I to have a phone conversation 
simply because of our time difference and the fact that he is a committed athlete who is always training. However, his wife Frances was very helpful in coordinating a series of email questions and answers so that we could just touch bases about some of the things that were on his mind following his recent victory. Among the more enjoyable experiences for me was his answer about the food that he has most missed while training for the upcoming match, and that was rice. I love that that was something he was looking forward to enjoying now that the fight was over, and that he was uh, planning to give himself at least two weeks of relaxation and recuperation before returning to his regular training regimen, something that he said he had maintained for a daily, weekly, and monthly practice, even during the contract disputes and other complications, that he had simply committed himself to working and preparing for the next opportunity when a fight arose. And when his fight did recently come about, it was just a matter, in his words, of changing the direction and tactics of his training while building upon the elements he'd already been working on. Now, I've got the full story available on uh, storytelling, or Seth Singleton Storyteller. Wow, I mixed up my own site there. Yes, on Seth Singleton Storyteller. And you can find it under Q&A with Filipino Rising Sensation. And from there, please go ahead and enjoy all of the Q&A. There's also a couple of great photos that Francis provided that give you a bit of the insight and feeling of what it was like to be there during the fight uh, in the corner with Mark and his coach and trainer, and also the moments leading up to his victory. Both Mark and Francis said they're excited about the results and looking forward to the chance to catching up soon and detailing every moment that comes about in his boxing career that he is able to share with us during this amazing journey. And you can find that full story at SethSingletonStoryteller.com. Just look for the title that begins Q&A with Filipino Boxing Sensation. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. There's been a recent resurgence in the centuries-long discussion about whether or not Atheism is a quantifiable or verified belief system, or even a philosophy or ideology. And in a recent article by James Wood called, If God is Dead, Your Time is Everything, he references a book by an artist named Martin Hoglan, and its approach to secularism and socialism. Now, it starts out with a confession of sorts in a journal called Salmangundi, in which a novelist and essayist named Marilyn Robinson confesses to knowing some good people who are atheists, but she's disappointed that she has yet to hear the good atheist position articulated. As she explains, she cannot or I cannot engage with an atheism that does not express itself. And then the article proceeds to move through a number of different points that were made in the time, both recent and not so recent, 
to the death of Christ and the concept of eternal life. It starts with the argument made by Pliny the Elder, who called uh, essentially this idea of death and resurrection or death and an eternal life a plague, a mad idea that life is renewed by death, arguing that nature's gift is for each person to trust in themselves and assume that death will offer exactly the same, as he put it, freedom of care or freedom from care that we all experienced before we were born, basically in that place known as oblivion. The article continues to move through arguments made by those like Montaigne, who professed a nominal Christianity, but who believed that there was a, a fortune and a value to the ending of life, as well as the example made by uh, the writer Chekhov, who asserted that his holy of holies was the human body, and that essentially, as illustrated in the story The Lady and the Little Dog, that small dramas like the ones we live are nothing alongside the timelessness of the ocean and the great tides that move it. There are other examples by James Baldwin, uh, Camus, talking about the myth of Sisyphus, the novel The First Man. And yet, it moves us directly into this book, Martin Hagelin's approach to the, the question, and essentially about how he goes about crafting an answer to it. But that the point being made here is that the argument by Hagelin is made without referencing any of these previous examples, and instead tries to approach it directly, uh, well, from a philosophical sense of general principles. And the idea that he comes to at the end is not that there is an issue with eternity or the desire for it. Instead, the focus is on what is lost, which is that with eternity, we lose meaning and value. That meaning and value actually collapse. And then he offers a great example of a northern Swedish landscape that he has visited since childhood and enjoys returning to. And in an excerpt from the book, Hagelin says, when I return to the same landscape every summer, part of what makes it so poignant is that I may never see it again. Moreover, I care for the preservation of the landscape because I am aware that even the duration of the natural environment is not guaranteed. Likewise, my devotion to the ones I love is inseparable from the sense that they cannot be taken for granted. Our time together is illuminated by the sense that it will not last forever, and we need to take care of one another because our lives are fragile. Now, this article by Mr. Woods can, goes on to point out that this idea continues if we consider the consequences of an existence without end as being somewhat horrifying, uh, and an eternity that was described by Louise Gluck as an absence of change would not be a rescue from 
anything that we are trying to avoid, but actually be the end of everything meaningful. Now, it takes a turn here, because while I enjoy so much of this idea, the reason Haglin brings it up is he actually, by furthering his argument, pushes onto an idea that, essentially, religious aspiration is secular aspiration, and that Haglin, personally, philosophically, believes that many supporters of religion, practicers of religion, are actually closet secularists, and that he wants to out them. And that we don't really want to be eternal, we just want lives that we enjoy to last for a really long time. And I feel like this really sort of changes the discussion, because it can be easy to point to a flaw in something that we disagree with, and to sort of just needle that flaw and never let go. But to build and expound on something like this is really a challenge. It, it, it's one of the things that makes philosophers uh, so revered when they push on into and beyond the boundaries of what we are told or maybe even the ideas we've come to formulate, and instead raise an argument that they can support through either examples or discussion that challenges those ideas enough for us to ask, where are the motivations behind the original ideas we're being taught? Is it about value to ourselves, value to the person who's telling it, or to support a general idea that, with enough support can be maintained and will rarely either be argued against or questioned. I think Haglund's raised a really great question here. I think that there's going to be a challenge placed if eternity is something that can be threatening or dangerous or something that can feel like it might actually engender fear, while also offering up this suggestion that through that, we cheapen the moments we're experiencing now by removing the precious quality of their, well, fragile existence and the short timeline on which they or we might exist at any given moment. And that when, well, when placed in those terms, the idea behind the shortness of life and the brevity is what makes it so powerful and what gives it such a value for those of us who ascribe a value to the life that we live and to the treasure we might believe it contains not only for us but for those that we love for those that we raise for those that we teach for those that we support it's easy to get into a philosophical sort of spiral from this point on, but I'm going to stop here and just try to dwell on the fact that when I'm remembering it, the value of my life, the value of the lives of those around me is not about the time that they're here or the time that they will experience after they're gone from here, but the value that is gained 
in whatever amount of time we get to experience. Thanks again for joining me for this edition of the Weekly Wrap. I hope you enjoyed my attempt to look into some great stories about the oral tradition, the future of science fiction, and how atheism is part of a discussion regarding the meaning of life as we see it, and whether or not a need for eternity improves or limits the value of that experience. The best part about sharing these stories is getting the chance to hear from you. If you have a chance to leave me a message, you can always do so with a comment on social media, or you can use the Anchor platform and leave me a voice message. Of course, the best way for you to leave me a message is the way that feels more comfortable for you. Feel free to tag me, Seth Singleton Storyteller with a hashtag or your favorite way to let me know you were listening and you have a comment you'd love for me to hear. I look forward to hearing from you and meeting with you next time for our next edition of The Weekly Wrap. So thank you again for listening. And if you find yourself with an extra moment at the end of this recording, and you feel like you've got the inspiration to share, subscribe, or just tell a friend? Well, thank you for that too.